Welcome to McKinsey's Discussions in Digital. This is our podcast series that brings together different voices in Silicon Valley to explore interesting issues emerging in our increasingly digital world while we enjoy some good food and drinks. Today we're here at the Roca Accor restaurant in downtown San Francisco, and we're looking to explore the topic of the marketing ecosystem. But first, some introductions. My name is Brian Gregg. I'm a senior partner in McKinsey's San Francisco office where I co-lead our marketing service line. And I'm joined tonight by three panel guests. The first, Dave Morgan, who's the CEO at Simul Media. The second, Brian Goffman, Vice President and Senior Solution Group Leader here at McKinsey, and has done a number of tours of duty, I hear, Brian, at Microsoft, LinkedIn, Samsung, a number of the consumer tech players here in the Valley and on the West Coast. And then my co-host, Diane Esber, who co-leads our West Coast consumer tech practice. Very exciting panel here. I guess maybe just to start us off tonight, and Dave, maybe I'll start with you, is how do you define ecosystem? For the customer, it's media companies that intermediate them and whose business it is to sell contact with them. And to the marketers, it's typically this intermediation by agencies who are contract services to do a lot of the things. And then what's happened, particularly in the digital world, is you get this, where well, you didn't have established supply chains because it's purely digital, or you have hundreds or thousands of companies in between intermediating. And so I just see this sort of like the end-to-end -end transaction. Brian, would you add any? Thing to that definition? As a publisher, you know, things have gotten increasingly consolidated. There was an early web where anybody, you know, could put up banners and be successful, and then the shift to mobile was a pretty dramatic change, but Facebook and LinkedIn eventually and others navigated it. Snapchat was kind of a native mobile product. So, but even when you look at the traffic or the time spent on mobile apps, it's really, really consolidating, and the big players are only getting bigger. So in the sense of an ecosystem, that part of the ecosystem is truly Darwinian and it's, um, you know, the winners are, are getting truly the top of the food chain. Dan, you work with a lot of CMOs and marketing teams in general. And I'm just curious, your version of, or your interpretation of what the biggest questions or challenges marketers are struggling with today given the ecosystem? Like what parts are they talking about? What parts are they wrestling with? Yeah, so I think one question we hear a lot of is um, one, the proliferation of players at, at, to help different companies with this ecosystem and address these different challenges. And so in a world where you could have in the olden days had one primary agency or a few partners, you're now dealing with you know, 50, 70, 100 plus different players helping with small pieces of that ecosystem. And one, is that the optimal setup, right? And then two, if not, how do I really decide strategically who to partner with in the biggest ways and what to bring in-house? Let's take that one. So, Brian, you used to be a, a marketer at LinkedIn or any of your other past stops. What, what was the ways in which you made decisions about agency partners and and, and who to really help you with given the hundred of slices, hundred of capabilities you might be solving for. I like to think of it like a barbell strategy. So you have to work with, it's sort of evolving into the very large players and the very small players. So the very large players are the names we talked about, Google, Facebook, Amazon increasingly, you know, the, the, the where the audiences are. And if you don't work with those companies, if you're trying to reach consumers or B2B, frankly, you're not going to be able to reach your volume targets. On the other hand, you need to work with these small players because they're innovating fast. And so, at least in my past experience, I would combine the two. And in order to do that, you kind of have to do three things. You know, first, 
you have to have somebody in charge of technology. The second thing is, and this depends whether it's B2B or B2C, but you, you have to have some form of operations group because there's so many systems to run and you, it could be in IT, but if it's in IT, you better have a very close partner. And then I think the third part is the, um, the creative. And I, I'm a big fan of having creative in-house. That doesn't necessarily work with, with uh, the agency model, but a mix of outside and inside creative capabilities can really lead to some breakthrough things. So, one of the things that I did not quite expect when I started Simul Media, but totally hits what Brian Goffin was talking about, was um, what happens when you can control the creative in-house. If you're going to be producing unique product you're going, that, are, that, are, that, that carry the essence of your brand and understand your consumer, you need to actually build your own factory of content, different types of content that we would, you know, creative in the ad business, that you're going to have available and you're going to be watching it, you're going to be optimizing it, you're going to be changing it, and you can change it in a faster cycle than you can change product. And it will actually lead to customer insights, it will lead to future product development. Yeah. But I wonder why you think, um, Brian, that that needs to sit in-house or that there are some strategic advantages to having that in-house. Because what we often hear um, from CMOs is that it's very, very hard to retain what they call quality creative talent over time. Right? And the way that many have found most effective is, yes, you might have a small internal team and they may be working on a piece of the business that is more um, run the machine, but for some big creative strategic moves, they find it hard to always get that from their internal team. So tell me how you've thought about that balance. If you look at the disruptors, in every case, they were driving their own creative and their own marketing programs and winning that way, at least early on. Now, once they got really big, maybe that shifted. But almost every case they had, in-house technology and in-house creative for their. Dave, you got a thought. Yeah, well, I think, I think that, you know what Brian Goffin said, I think it's what we're seeing today and what we're going to see more of, which is manufacturing is commoditizing, you know, you know, distribution logistics is commoditizing, access to retail touch points is commoditizing. In that world, What's not commoditizing is the customer relationship, consumer relationship. How do you talk to them, touch them, and you can no longer just rent that and be differentiated. But go there, so, so what does this uh, agency of the future look like? You're not going to do business with a company that's essentially a, a, a FTE, you know, cost and services uh, merchant bank. So you actually want people to take risk with you, to stay long with you. I would say, in the 60s and 70s, when we saw some of the first full-service agencies grow up, they were very much aligned with that. That was certainly what David Ogilvy was doing when it was Ogilvy. But um, fundamentally, the holding companies were not designed to create customers for their customers, and that's a problem. And if you build on that and then go back to your point of there needs to be now a technologist within the marketing department, right? Tell me more about how you see that role evolving. Well, I'm I, admittedly a little bit biased. I mean, coming from more of a product background, um, but but I think you're seeing a lot of product um, technologists coming into marketing and viewing a lot of what they're building as products. You also have concepts like agile taking over marketing, and those really came from the way products got built in an agile environment and saying, well, we're time bound and we're resource bound. So what are we going to deliver in this time with the resources we have? That wasn't a traditional marketing approach in the past. If you look at some of the best companies, and you know, I'd put, for example, Netflix in this category of you know truly being um, a fantastic 
marketer and also extremely good at operating their marketing campaigns, yep. you see both amazing creative and also great operations. That's not, that doesn't happen without technology. Um, the, uh, the other way it, it, it shows up is you, um, you, know, you actually are experimenting with technology and you're able to work with startups who are kind of raw a lot of times yeah. and you have to have somebody on your team internally who can adopt that technology and, and, and help implement it. I think one of the big issues are two big ones that you've raised which are one, the marketer now needs to include technology in their portfolio and operations and so that's a different marketer than entered the workforce 30 years ago as a marketer. This is, this is a person that's more like a chief operating officer. This is a future CEO. This is someone who actually is going to control the product. This is someone who makes things and actually is responsible for their delivery. And so it's more likely that that's an incubation for a CEO. You wouldn't have incubated a CEO out of a marketer 30 years ago unless you were just a unique, just pure marketing company. Um, the second thing is that it says that you, will, you must untether their technology choices from the enterprise's technology choices. And that sometimes will actually cause outsourcing is the only way to deal with it because there's no way you leave that person inside and not have them be a slave to the master of that CIO that's been taught in the whole wrong approach. So first of all, this salmon thingy is amazing. So yeah. let's not lose that one for future. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but you're all bringing up this idea of you know new capabilities and idea of what got you here might not be what gets you to the next. But I'm, my question is if you if you step back because I think nobody would argue the fact that new capabilities are needed. Whether you're technology, whether it's the what you call Dave the builder or this almost the CEO or product leader mindset. That's I think everybody's nodding heads at home. But then the question becomes, well, where do how do I get that talent? Because I need it like yesterday. Well, I think you have to be honest with yourself and your people first, which is you are what you are, and you have to decide what people are focused on on doing the same job they're going to need to keep doing because that's paying the bills if that's the case. And then you're going to have to decide how you're going to attack the future, and that may have to be done separately. Everyone always waves the, the money issue, and I'm based in, in New York, in Manhattan, though I've done business in the, in the Valley here for 20-plus years. And I've had employees here and employees there and, and, I, and, and other cities. Do you sort of like in the last 20, 30 years, the best marketers, if you call that, or the best trained marketers came out of the manufacturing brand world, right? The, the GIF, um, Peter Pan example you gave, the P&Gs, the, the Kraft Foods. What's the equivalent of that today? Like, where are the bastions of the future marketers going to come from? Brian, I'm interested in what you have to say too, but Dave, maybe start with you. Well, I'm going to say first, the digital first companies are creating a whole new breed. So yeah. two years ago, three years ago, I'd have probably given you a different answer. I'd have given you legacy brands with some engineers or, or mostly, I would say quite frankly, immigrant talent that had technical degrees that were incredibly creative. But boy, the digital first brands are really crushing it. I think if I look at companies like um, Home Advisor, um, you know, a company comes out of nowhere four or five years ago and they're focused on acquisition and they grow. I think companies like Expedia, and in many ways, because you can't even name the marketers, it's because I can't right now, because they're not celebrity marketers. They're people that actually don't go out and speak on the circuit all the time. Today's marketers, tomorrow's marketers are super successful. They're actually home doing the business. How many chief operating officers 
are on the circuit. Like getting fed. Because they got to worry about like did Cyber Monday perform or not. <laughs> the new marketers have to do it. Well, I think I'll say what the characteristics are. I mean, one one characteristic, and it can be anywhere, is they're doers and leaders, um, which which is more akin to you know back to that technology example. You know, they're they're coders who can also lead a team and be an architect, and so being just one or the other, you're not going to be able to make it as a senior marketer. You have to know some of the nuts and bolts of how these systems work, um, not just the results and, and, and managing up. Um, I think the, I, I like the theme of the digital natives, but I also think there are amazing people coming out of other places that you wouldn't necessarily expect. I'm a big fan of an operating model that allows for smaller teams to be able to innovate in different ways and optimize for effectiveness, not really for um, efficiency. And a lot of you know, big companies tend to orient themselves around eliminating du duplication. But what that means is you can't have a whole bunch of small teams trying to do kind of the same things. But the reality is we started off talking about an ecosystem. It's an ecosystem. And the winner will rise to the top. And a lot of the companies that we, we've talked about that um, innovate quickly have small teams going after big ideas. And then they, if they see two that are doing well and need to be merged, they merge them. I think this is really critical. If there's one thing that um, anybody in an existing marketing role can be certain, large company, small company, is that um, historically, insights and analytics and information about what you did, you got to control first and foremost before your enterprise knew it. Your agency never told the CEO or anyone else something before you were told. You had the results of all campaigns, you had all the polling results, you had all of the, any information other than merchandising, but that was controlled by merchandising, you had first. We've now disconnected that, and the analytics exist external to marketing, and customer analytics and marketing analytics. And this is something that I think is probably, if there's any one thing a marketer should get in front of today, is that they should know that the scorecard on how they're doing is going to be known by everybody else in the organization the moment it happens. And if they don't invest to find out the scorecard at least at the same in time, they'll lose. Brian Gregg, that's even a bigger issue, which is they created a metric which was entirely self-serving to the vendors they were dealing with, who were paying for them, taking care of them. And now they're going to have to deal with a metric that has to do with what their shareholders want and that is, that's, that's problematic. We've been talking a lot about the marketer and the marketer ecosystem, but what about, so let's take a second and think about the, from the customer angle for a minute. And even the, the customer ecosystem, if you want to call it that, I mean, the amount of interconnected network of impressions and touch points that customers receive from a brand, you have to admit it could be a nightmare, particularly in an IoT scenario. You were talking about garage door openers earlier, Brian. Goffman, the idea that, you know, I now need to make sure my garage door opener is compatible with my keys, is compatible with my, and figure out what's the cause when an issue pops up. And anyway, you can imagine this is a navigational nightmare if, if not properly served up. And so I'm curious, as you look at from the customer side, where is that heading? One ecosystem I'm really interested in that I think is not yet well understood is the voice ecosystem in the home. And you know, it was this real sleeper, voice, re voice recognition technology was kind of a call center optimization, cost cutting move. Uh, it didn't work very well, but these <laughs> systems now, 
it are, are truly mind-blowing what they can do. And the penetration rate, the growth rate is, is off the charts. So you're gonna have multiple voice-based ecosystems in your home, sitting on your kitchen shelf, uh, you know, and, and they're each got their own, they're, they're each trying to own, to some extent, your, your home. Right. Um, but they're also trying to own the channel into retail. I think the, the, the complexity of that ecosystem, even as a, as a marketing leader, of your own individual ecosystem is, is incredibly difficult and that makes execution of brand or, or a consistent message very, very challenging. Now that said, the payoff of doing it right is gigantic. Diane, you work with a lot of these teams. Are you seeing, or what are you seeing marketing functions do better than not in terms of seamlessly communicating with customers? Yeah, in terms of the holistic customer experience. Well, this is interesting because when you think of the automated, product-driven, AI type of marketing campaigns, sometimes what you lose is the Jeff Bezos curation of what's going to show up on the Kindle, right? So I think what a lot of com companies are doing is actually a hybrid of the two. So they're both having the systems that perpetuate trigger-based communication and pick for the customer what will be most effective, but then do some of the more traditional views of you know walking the wall or seeing the holistic campaign to understand what this is actually going to look like from a customer perspective. I always go by the phrase, um, you know, we we tend to end, at least in Silicon Valley, we tend to. Um, overestimate what can be done in five years and underestimate what can be done in 10. So three to five years, things are changing quickly, but I think they're changing uh, out of tr out of things that we probably already see the seeds of now. On that note. And this has been a lovely spirited conversation, exactly what I expected from all of you. So thank you for joining me this evening. Provocative views and insights are exactly what we'd hoped for.